Good morning. Uh, welcome to Grand Rounds. And this one I got right at the uh, at the graduation ceremony for the residents. I opened the ceremony by saying welcome to Grand Rounds. So I got support. You know, mine goes COVID time era uh, changes. Uh, I'm so happy that you're all here. I think you're going to be really, really, uh, uh, you know, very happy to hear Dr. Cloutier share uh, all the work that she has done with the committee members at the NIH in, in recent times. And, and Michelle, welcome. It's really Great to have you. Uh, I, I do see you on, on the Zoom video, and it's really fantastic that you were able to join us uh, here today. To, to introduce you, and I want to, I, I, you know, we were asked to do this quickly, so we will, uh, is I mean, I'm going to ask Dr. Jess Hollenbeck to come up and uh, say a few words about uh, Dr. Cloutier. Uh, Jess is one of our outstanding junior faculty members uh, who has been mentored by Dr. Cloutier for many years, and she directs the Asthma Center here at Connecticut Children's. Uh, she's a PhD. She uh, has focused her research on, on asthma and health disparities, the management of asthma in school settings, and uh, it's really advancing her own career here. And we're very proud that she has been able to continue with us for all these years, and we will continue to support her uh, in line with what uh, Michelle has done for so many years. So I'm going to ask uh, Jess to come up and uh, introduce uh, Dr. Cloutier. Yes. Thank you, Juan. Good morning, everybody. Hi, Michelle. So I was told to keep this brief, so I will. Um, so good morning and welcome, everyone. I have the distinct honor this morning of introducing our speaker, my mentor, co uh, colleague, and friend, Dr. Michelle Cloutier. Uh, Michelle retired as Professor Emerita in December 2016, so it's been more than five years. So in a sense, I consider this her homecoming, and will take pleasure in walking you through a brief history of her accomplishments. As many of you know, Michelle has a very impressive CV. For those of you who don't know Michelle, this short introduction cannot do justice to her more than 40-year career centered on improving the well-being of children. I was fortunate to begin working with Michelle as she was approaching the end of her career. She stretched her neck out for me. A newly minted molecular biology trained bench scientist looking for a path to clinical research and chronic disease prevention. One of my first assignments was to conduct an updated cost-effective analysis of her award-winning primary care as a management program, Easy Breathing. You may have heard of it. This program was one of the first to show that national asthma guidelines, which you'll hear more about today, when implemented by primary care clinicians, could improve pediatric asthma outcomes. By many accounts, developing, testing, implementing, and disseminating this type of program would span and define most investigators' careers. But Michelle's passion for research and teaching spilled over into so many different areas. This is highlighted by her numerous teaching awards and public service awards, her more than 150 publications and book chapters, and several uh, numerous federally funded grants. From the challenges of cystic fibrosis to the role of cotton dust tannin and bisonosis, also known as brown lung disease, to the genetics of asthma in Puerto Rican children, to identifying provider and organizational characteristics that are successful in implementing a disease management program, to her contributions to pediatric obesity. Michelle's work truly spanned the bench to the bedside. Along the way, she did not forget to mentor and truly bring up junior faculty, fellows, residents, graduate and medical and undergraduate students, and high school students. In the words of one of her K Award mentees, Michelle set the benchmark for being an outstanding clinician, researcher, teacher, mentor, and collaborator. 
She served as chair of my NIH KOA advisory committee, and I'd like to express a sincere thank you for the support and encouragement you provided towards my development as a physician scientist and all that you have done to improve pediatric health. Wishing you my best to your retirement and congratulations on a truly remarkable career. Michelle is the ultimate embodiment of a mentor, passionate scientist, compassionate clinician, and dear and quite humorous friend. Thank you, Michelle, for all of your contributions, keeping the health and well-being of children front and center, and reminding us all to be giraffes in our lives. Because sometimes we need to stick our neck out and take a chance on people, ideas, in order to grow, innovate, and thrive. Thank you. Mm -hmm. But before you start, Michelle, uh, from a former mentee also, uh, and you helped me get my own K award many years ago, and you helped me to read blood gases uh, when I was a first-year intern in John Dempsey Hospital in the, in the breathing room. I think it was the treatment room. I forget it was the BPD room in any case where you, that you led for so many years. We want to thank you, and uh, we want to present this plaque to you. We wanted to do it in person, but we'll make sure that Jess brings it directly to your house. And it says, with our gratitude for your lifetime of devotion to the well-being of all children and for your priceless contributions to the Department of Pediatrics, the University of Connecticut School of Medicine and Connecticut Children's, presented to Michelle Cloutier, Professor Emeritus, Department of Pediatrics. And a quote from uh, one of your favorite people, it's not about how much we give, but how much love we put into giving. That's from Mother Teresa. So Michelle, thank you for everything that you have done for all of us. Uh, we are indebted to you uh, forever. So thank you, and now I'm gonna pass it on so you can continue your presentation. Well, good morning, everyone, and, and thank you very much, uh, Dr. Salazar and, and Jess for that um, lovely introduction. Um, I am uh, very pleased to be here uh, this morning and, um, and to see uh, you all uh, virtually uh, and uh, uh, maybe someday uh, in uh, person. I've had an unfortunate uh, event, which has which is keeping me uh, at home. It is not COVID related, uh, but, uh, but I am unable to uh, leave the house. So um, that's why I'm going to do this virtually. And what I uh, want to do is I want to, um, I want to try and present the new asthma guidelines, the 2020 focused updates to the asthma management guidelines from the pediatric perspective, um, but also in a way that I hope uh, can help um, those of you who are beginning to think about how to implement uh, this program in uh, your practice. Uh, this is my disclosure uh, slide. Uh, Regeneron makes a monoclonal antibody against uh, for asthma. Uh, we are not going to talk about that today. So uh, my goal uh, for the next uh, few minutes is to talk a little bit about the processes that we use to develop the recommendations because um, it's important, I think, for you to understand the rigor 
with which these guidelines were developed. And they are the most rigorous uh, processes that have been used heretofore. I'm then going to discuss the two topic areas that I think are of greatest importance and use and perhaps confusion uh, to uh, all of us. That is the allergen mitigation strategies, the new recommendations and the pharmacologic recommendations, particularly around intermittent ICS and SMART. And then uh, I'm going to briefly mention uh, the recommendations in uh, the other topic areas. So what's new with this update? Well, the, the first thing that was new is the diversity of the expert panel. Um, it, there were people of many expertise. Uh, 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 there were lots of pediatricians and it wasn't because of me. Um, it, there were just lots of us, emergency room physicians, primary care pediatricians, content experts, both allergists and pulmonologists. Um, we had primary care clinicians, adult and pediatric and family medicine, health policy experts, dissemination and implementation clinicians. We just had a, a ton of diversity. We also had input from focus groups composed of patients and caregivers and primary care clinicians, specifically around the recommendations that were being developed in terms of, well, what do you think about them? How do we do that? What, what would you need to be able to do? We also used a methodology called GRADE, which is the state-of-the-art methodology for, uh, for developing uh, recommendations. And what is incredibly important about GRADE is that it is transparent. That is to say, when you look at a recommendation that's coming out of this panel, you can go back and you can look at every step of the way, what decisions were made about the harms, about the benefits, about the risks, about, uh, about equity issues or around burden. So you may not agree with the recommendations, but you can see how we develop them. It doesn't just go from, from data to, oops, here's a recommendation. You see each step of the way. It also combines data across studies so that it utilizes all the data that's available. And then it makes strong and conditional recommendations for and against a course of action. And we'll go into that in a little more detail. It, it incorporates benefits and harms into the recommendations. So you might have something that is of very modest benefit, but it has no harms. Well, it'll get a good recommendation then. Or it might have modest benefits, but high risk, and it may not be recommended for, so that the harms are considered in making the recommendation, not just the, the uh, outcomes or the benefits. It used rigorous conflict of interest policies uh, that uh, are, are in keeping with the American College of Physicians. And I think the end result is that these are guidelines that we can trust. Um, and I do believe that they are trustworthy. They have some limitations. I'm gonna talk a little bit about that, but they are uh, trustworthy. The other thing that's new about them is that the implementation was considered early in the document development. So that GRADE has, a, has kind of a fussy terminology and the recommendations are written in the GRADE terminology. But right below that is a clinician summary. It's what, for example, if I saw you in the elevator and you asked me a question, it's what I would say to you about that recommendation so that it is a very user-friendly um, uh, sort of summary of that recommendation. 
There are then practical suggestions and tips to using the recommendation, the sort of who, what, where, and why, uh, and how of recommendations. And then finally, there's a section on guidance for discussion with patients. And one of the things that's stressed in these new guidelines is the importance of shared decision-making. And what we've done is we've tried to extract from the recommendation what sorts of information we think patients might find especially useful or important in sort of deciding whether or not that's a, that's a therapy for them. The draft recommendations were vetted by more than 500 individuals. Uh, there were broad recommendations that go across the age groups. There are 19 in total recommendations across six topics and uh, the recommendations themselves to find the ages and the levels of severity. So there are four types of recommendations that are possible. A recommendation can be for or against an intervention or a course of action. And within a for or against recommendation, it can the recommendation itself can be strong or conditional. So what does that mean for patients and for clinicians and others? Well, for patients, a strong recommendation is one that almost all would want. Very few patients will not want this recommendation. And for you as clinicians, almost all patients should receive this intervention. There are only three strong recommendations in these new guidelines, one of which we're gonna talk about in depth, and this is the one that you should be implementing. It's also important for policymakers because a strong recommendation is one that can be and probably should be adapted as a policy or as a performance measure. And that becomes important for smart therapy, which we'll talk about. Conditional recommendations, on the other hand, are recommendations that most patients will want, but many won't. And that for you, different choices are going to be appropriate based upon the values and preferences of the patients themselves. And policyholders uh, will need to think about um, whether they implement this or not. So in terms of an overview, um, uh, what is the update? Well, it is a focused update of six priority topics. It is not a revision of EPR3. This is not EPR4. This is a focused update of six topics. It addressed pre-specified key questions and using all of the available evidence in the literature through October of 2018. Recommendations, and that this is important, particularly for some of the pharmacotherapy. Recommendations for topics not addressed uh, in uh, the update were pulled through from EPR3. So you're gonna see some recommendations and I'll show you those recommendations that come from EPR3. And it's because they've not been looked at. And so they've not changed as a result of that, not because there's data that supports them, but rather it's a pull through. We limited the use of expert opinion and extrapolation of data across populations or ages. And this is important because you're gonna see some gaps. So we'll recommend something for very young and something for older and nothing for in between. And you're gonna say, why? Well, the reason is because there just are no data uh, uh, for that, or it was not addressed as a specific question. Not addressed were the biologics. And the reason for this is at the time that the topics were being determined, um, there, were, there was only one biologic on the market. 
And this is, and it was felt that they were an emerging topic. They weren't sort of ready for prime time. Of course, little did we know that so much would happen uh, in the last couple of years. A total of 19 recommendations were made and 18 of them, so we don't, we don't get off, 18 of them uh, pertain to children uh, and or adolescents. And here they are. Um, they are fractional exhaled nitric oxide in asthma diagnosis and management. They are remediation of indoor allergens. So house dust, mites, pets, mold. They are adjustable medication dosing. This is intermittent inhaled corticosteroid therapy. Long acting muscarinic agents. So this is, um, uh, so this are, these are the llamas. Um, immunotherapy and the management of asthma. And the final one recommended only in adults over 18 is bronchial thermoplastic. I'm gonna focus on the two uh, that are bolded uh, because I think those are the ones of greatest utility um, to you right now. So let's just get right uh, into the recommendations. So the first uh, topic I'm gonna deal with are the effectiveness of indoor allergen uh, mitigation strategies. And I'm gonna start with the recommendation against. So implementation of indoor allergen mitigation strategies, the expert panel recommended against mitigation strategies in those individuals with asthma who are not, are either, are not exposed to the specific allergen and they have no evidence of sensitization to it by allergy testing or skin prick testing, uh, skin prick testing, and they have no symptoms upon exposure. That is to say, allergen mitigation is not recommended as part of routine asthma care. It is, however, recommended for individuals with asthma who are exposed to specific allergens to which they are either sensitized or upon exposure develop symptoms. So if every time you're playing with the cat, you develop itchy eyes and coughing and wheezing, a mitigation strategy against cat would be recommended. When used, multi-component allergen-specific mitigation strategies are recommended. Single component mitigation strategies are not effective. And we'll see some of that in a minute. The one exception to that is integrated pest management. And integrated pest management um, is recommended as either a single or as part of a multi-component um, mitigation effort. Now, pest, integrated pest management is actually multi-component. It prevents infestation of vermin as well as control of those uh, in the environment. So in a sense, integrated pest management is multi-component. And here's the important one, the one that we can only say with, with some certainty in this recommendation, is that impermeable pillow and mattress covers are, should be used only as part of a multi-component mitigation intervention against dust mite. It is not effective as a single strategy. Now, I do want you to notice that all of these are conditional recommendations, so you can be used in some patients. They also have a low certainty of evidence. And the reason for this is that the data in regard to allergen mitigation strategies, indoor allergen mitigation strategies, is actually 
not very strong, which is a, a nicer way of saying it's pretty weak. The studies are, uh, in general, were not blinded. They were not, they were not randomized. Uh, they uh, were sort of, uh, they were small. They kind of jump all over the place. And the benefits, even of, of the best of those studies, is pretty small. So let's explore this just a little bit more. So you can use the mitigation uh, strategies uh, in individuals with asthma of all ages and all severities. So what do you need to do? Well, the first thing you need to do is, and this is a pull through from EPR3, you should assess every individual with asthma for exposures. And there are several ways that you can do this. Um, if you have really uh, highly motivated individuals uh, with pretty good literacy, um, they can use this uh, uh, EPA uh, asthma checklist. It's actually excellent. You take a survey in your house and you, they tell you what to look for and you check the box. And then if you have that, it's got sort of a list of things that you can uh, then implement to reduce that exposure. We're not gonna have a lot of families who are gonna do that. That's not something you're going to necessarily do in the office, although families could bring that in and share that information with you. So what are the things you need to assess? Well, you need to ask first about environmental tobacco smoke. And even though that's not an allergen and an indoor allergen, I put it here because it is the single most important environmental exposure that you can assess in your patients. This is the one you need to you need to put all your eggs in this basket. If you can't, if you don't have a lot of baskets, put all your eggs in this basket and work on environmental tobacco smoke. But you can ask and you should ask about pets, including birds. Don't forget to ask about birds. Ask about a gas stove, particularly in our neck of the woods because people do use it for heat and it's not vented and that's a problem. Vermin uh, as well as mold. Second thing you should do is test for sensitization. And who should you test? Well, individuals who have persistent asthma, you should test them either with specific allergen-specific IgE or allergy skin testing. You wanna implement those strategies though only in the individuals who have a history of exposure and either sensitization or symptoms upon exposure. I can't stress that enough. When implemented, you're gonna implement multi-component mitigation strategies to the offending allergens. And remember, single strategies are not effective. Unfortunately, which specific combination of strategies are most effective cannot be determined from the data. And, and in fact, um, many times, uh, uh, they, investigators hurt the data. And what I mean by that is, there's a, a wonderful study, it's probably the best study of integrated pest management, but they threw in pillow and mattress covers but they're looking for cockroach and they're looking at mice. And so they threw that in and it really confounded our, our ability to analyze the data and make recommendations rather than helping. Do remember though, for all of the studies that have examined these strategies, the benefits are small, but so are the harms. But it may distract from other aspects of therapy. And it can be associated with a patient burden and ongoing cost, the cost of filters, for example. And finally, the other important point is that public health considerations drove the recommendations for pest and mold control. 
That is to say, um, pest and mold control, really, um, in the opinion of the expert panel, this is an environmental justice issue. It's not an asthma specific issue. It is everyone deserves to live in places that are free from pest and mold. And very quickly, this is the only evidence to decision result I'm going to show you. And this is a summary of sort of the interventions, whether they were single component or effective as multi-component. And I want you to notice just all the daggers excuse me, all of those blue daggers are indicators of there was insufficient evidence. There just aren't studies that support it. The one that I wanna point out to you is the one for air filtration systems and purifiers of which there are no interventions, either single or multi-component, which have demonstrated that they are effective. So they're not recommended for indoor allergen mitigation. HEPA vacuum cleaners are not recommended as a single component, but that evidence does favor multi-component, but in children only. So I'm just gonna, this is my last sort of dive into this. Uh, this comes from the easy breathing miasma triggers. And uh, here's, here, here's a multi-component dust mite intervention. So one is to the pillow and mattress, you know, putting them in impermeable uh, dust mite pillow and mattress covers. Do remember though, that you've got to tell people that they've got to take those covers off the bed and clean them periodically, because even though they're protecting the inside of the mattress from dust mites escaping, they're now, dust mites are now settling on the surface of that cover. So make sure people know to wash them and wash all of the bedding in hot water uh, every week and 120 degrees is sufficient. Um, Picking a stuffed animal, so sort of decreasing exposure, avoiding having curtains, heavy curtains and blinds, that can be helpful. Cleaning the house when the child is not around, wiping the surfaces with a damp cloth. Again, efforts to reduce the amount of dust in the house may be helpful. And then vacuuming carpeted surfaces. Do notice that removing the carpets from your child's bedroom are no longer is no longer recommended as an allergen mitigation strategy. It is not effective. Small study, conditional recommendation, low certainty. All right, so let, I wanna spend the, the rest of the time, really all, almost all of it, talking about intermittent asthma therapy. And I'm gonna start with the first of the recommendations, which is for um, step one therapy. The expert panel recommends a short course daily inhaled corticosteroids at the onset of a respiratory tract infection with short-acting bronchodilator, SABA is needed for quick relief for one specific group and subgroup. That is for children zero to four years of age who have a history of recurrent wheezing triggered only by respiratory tract infections. So it is a conditional recommendation and high certainty. So what does that mean? So using it as part of step one. So step one, remember, is intermittent asthma. So you're gonna use this only in zero to four-year-olds and only in zero to four-year-olds who have asthma symptoms only when they get a respiratory tract infection and not in between. And they either have had three such episodes in their lifetime or two episodes 
in the previous 12 months. The benefit of this short course, and short course, by the way, is defined as seven to 10 days. The benefit of this is a 33% reduction in the risk of systemic corticosteroid treatment. So that it's very effective in decreasing um, oral steroids in this young uh, uh, age group. The risk is a possible small effect on growth, which means that if, when you use this therapy in zero to four-year-olds, you really do want to monitor carefully their growth velocity. So, excuse me, on the right-hand side, I'm sort of showing you a uh, sort of a sample asthma treatment plan. So these are kids, these are not going to be on, these kids are not going to be on any daily treatment. But at the first sign, you're going to instruct them at the first sign of a cold. So any cold symptoms begin. And here are two potentially usable uh, treatment regimens. These are both uh, are the ones that were used in the literature. One is budesonide, one milligram in the nebulizer, two times a day and albuterol is needed as you would normally use it up to four times a day for seven to 10 days until all cold symptoms have resolved for two days. So, so it's one milligram. Or the second one is fluticasone and it's 250 micrograms. It's three puffs or 750 micrograms uh, twice a day. And again, albuterol as needed. And so budesonide, one milligram by nebulizer, fluticasone, 750 micrograms, both twice a day, um, uh, have been used effectively and are associated with this 33% decrease in systemic corticosteroid treatment. Now the treatment for intermittent asthma for all other zero to four-year-olds and older children and adolescents still remains as albuterol as needed, either by nebulizer or by metered dose inhaler. So that has not changed. So that's the first change, a very specific group. The second uh, change uh, is the recommendation um, to use either daily low dose inhaled corticosteroids and as needed SABA for quick relief. So this is step two therapy. This is mild persistent asthma. This is what is currently recommended, daily low-dose ICS and as-needed SABA, or, or, and these are two equivalent therapies, this is the new recommendation, or as-needed inhaled corticosteroid and short-acting bronchodilator used concomitantly, so SABA followed by ICS in youths, and it's specific only for youths 12 years and older as well as adults with mild persistent asthma. It is step two therapy. It is still a conditional recommendation, but there's moderate certainty that this is valid. So who are you gonna use this in? So step two is mild persistent asthma. For adolescents ages 12 years and adults, you can use either the previous recommendation, that is the daily ICS, or the new recommendation, the intermittent ICS. For younger children, zero to 11, the recommendation is the daily ICS only. So that is not a change. So here is the previous 
uh, recommendation. This is from EPR3. It is still the preferred treatment for zero to 11 year olds, a daily low dose inhaled corticosteroid, 80 micrograms of beclomethasone equivalent two times a day and two to four puffs as needed and before exercise. The new recommendation is also a preferred treatment for 12 years and older, and it's two to four puffs of albuterol followed by 80 to up to 250 micrograms of beclomethasone equivalent as needed and before exercise. So what are some of the considerations here? Well, for step two, the benefits of daily versus intermittent ICS are similar and the risks of harm were small. And this is where patient preference is especially important in deciding which of these two therapies to use. Now, overall ICS exposure will vary depending upon which of these two treatment regimens you use. And for children, and uh, there may be some growth considerations. Not examined were sort of other combinations that might be also effective in step two therapy, such as the use of an inhaled corticosteroid and a LABA, such as formoterol. If you have in your patients whose asthma is well controlled on their current therapy, so they're not having symptoms, they're not having exacerbations, don't change their therapy. And that's the recommendation throughout. If they're doing well, you know, if it, if it ain't broke, don't fix it, you know, don't change it. But it, it does stress the importance, particularly in step two, of this shared uh, decision-making process. And the um, next one is one that just broke my heart uh, personally, because I happen to actually like this therapy, but it doesn't work. And that is the expert panel recommended against a short-term increase in the ICS dose for increased symptoms or decreased peak flow for children four years and older and adults who have mild to moderate persistent asthma, and here's the caveat, who are likely to be adherent to daily ICS treatment. It's a conditional recommendation and it has low certainty, but there's, there, there's still a fair amount of data um, that's supporting it. So, what shouldn't we do? Well, we shouldn't increase the ICS dose routinely as part of the sick plan. So studies have looked at doubling, tripling, quadrupling, even quintupling the ICS dose as part of the sick plan. <clears throat> These strategies are not effective in reducing systemic corticosteroid courses or in improving quality of life. They are not recommended for patients who are compliant. Now. We can spend a lot of time talking about this word compliant. And the expert panel does not define what constitutes being compliant. However, in a subgroup analysis of this um, recent, recent to the guideline release study, they looked at those individuals who were taking their daily therapy less than 50% of the time. And they were assessing that with uh, uh, a, count, a counter. And what they found is that um, for individuals 16 and older who are not taking their recommended therapy, quadrupling the dose was effective. 
So these are individuals who might be prescribed an inhaled corticosteroid two puffs two times a day, but they're actually might be only using it one time a day. And in fact, they might not even be using it every day. For those individuals, eight puffs two times a day for seven to 10 days until all their symptoms have resolved was effective in reducing systemic corticosteroid doses. So, you know, this is where it's, uh, it's physician judgment. And, and do remember if somebody says, if you ask them how, how often they miss and they say, well, once or twice a week, well, it's really, uh, you double it, it's two to four times a week. Uh, and that would be sort of the minimum strategy. Okay, so let's spend some time on SMART. So SMART therapy is use of an inhaled corticosteroid for Moderol in a single inhaler used as both a daily controller and quick relief therapy for children four and older and adults with moderate to severe persistent asthma. This is a strong recommendation. We need to be doing this. There's high certainty of evidence in 12 and up, moderate certainty in four to 11. What is SMART? SMART is use of a single combination inhaler that contains both an inhaled corticosteroid and a specific long-acting bronchodilator, namely formoterol. The combination inhaler is used for both daily treatment and for quick relief. That is, each time the individual uses the inhaler, they receive both a rapid onset long-acting bronchodilator and an inhaled corticosteroid. Individuals treated with SMART do not use a short-acting bronchodilator. They only use the combination inhaler. That is to say, anytime you're having an issue, you're going to treat it. So who should use it? Anyone four years and older with moderate persistent asthma. If their asthma is inadequately controlled on step two therapy, so an ICS placaba daily or intermittently, in step three, you're going to use uh, again, moderate persistent, this is a low-dose ICS, and for Moderol in step four, it's a medium dose. The benefits are SMART is going to reduce exacerbations, requiring systemic corticosteroids by a lot, up to 50%. And it gives you the bang for the buck with a lower overall steroid exposure. Here are the doses that were used in three of the studies upon which this recommendation was made. So, uh, fluticasone for Moderol, the 80 microgram, uh, 4.5 microgram for Moderol, one puff every day or BID, one puff as needed, up to eight puffs for four to 11 year olds, 12 puffs for 12 and up, same, same dosing. And those in step four, 160 micrograms of fluticasone, 4.5 of for Moderol, two puffs every day, and one possibly two puffs as needed and before exercise. So this is why we want us to use this therapy. So it, these are studies uh, from Paul O'Byrne and it's the only data slide I'm actually gonna show. This is a study in which they compared budesonide alone plus Saba as needed, budesonide and formoterol combination plus, excuse me, Saba as needed and then SMART budesonide for moderol maintenance and relief. And they showed a marked decrease in, in the number of days to an exacerbation. And they demonstrated a marked decrease in the uh, amount of uh, inhaled corticosteroid. So from 320 micrograms per day down to about 120 
micrograms per day. So highly effective and every study has shown this same effect. So why formoterol? It has a rapid onset of action and it can be used more than two times a day. ICS formoterol is FDA approved for use in children four years and older, um, but it is not FDA approved as SMART. All of the studies used uh, Symbacort as their ICS formoterol, but there's no reason to think that Dulera, which is Mometazone formoterol in the same doses, could not also be used. Um, it is for individuals uh, with, uh, so for individuals with moderate persistent asthma and their asthma is well controlled on alternative therapy, such as an ICS and some other type of LABA, do not switch to SMART. Do not mix promoterol and salmeterol. So don't use uh, salmeterol containing, so like Advair, uh, twice a day and then uh, Symbacort for, for relief therapy. SMART has been used in Europe for more than a decade and it's been very safe. The challenges to using SMART are prescribing more than one inhaler per month. So how to kind of do that? Well, here are some suggestions. You want to label the prescription with SMART. Just say SMART, SMART therapy. And then prescribe specifically one inhaler for home, one inhaler for school, or one inhaler as needed. Or, and this has worked for a number of people, write two separate prescriptions, one for daily therapy and one for PRN. So you might write Symbacort. 80 and 4.5, one puff BID, dispense, dispense one inhaler, 60 inhalations, and then Symbacort uh, for one puff as needed, up to eight puffs a day, and dispense the larger size. One puff twice a day will last more than a month, um, it, and it will cover um, the as needed if, if you can dispense 120 inhalation inhaler. So that it, 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 make sure you dispense the number of actuations. Um, it is uh, not unlike the current practice of increasing inhaled corticosteroid for an exacerbation. As I mentioned, it is not adherent with the package insert and it's not going to be. Use of SMART uh, versus a short acting bronchodilator for exercise pre-treatment, there's only one study, but, but one puff of, uh, of uh, an ICS and 4.5 micrograms of formoterol before exercise will be effective to prevent exercise-induced bronchospasm. So the benefits of SMART talking to patients, one inhaler. They only have one. They have no more albuterol. It's an albuterol-like medicine, works as fast, that works uh, last longer. In the long run, you'll need, your child will need less medicine. It will prevent asthma exacerbations and especially courses of oral steroids, as well as ED visits and hospitalizations. So just a brief word about the long-acting bronchodilators. Uh, they are recommended as part of step five therapy. This is for severe persistent asthma uh, as part of triple therapy. So an inhaled corticosteroid, a long-acting bronchodilator, it could be formoterol or some other type, and a LABA as triple therapy. Um, in children, it, it is approved for, for children six to 12, but I really would suggest that you use it in partnership with an asthma specialist. Uh, it's severe persistent asthma. They really do need to be co-managed. ICS LABA is preferred to the LAMA uh, when it is alternative therapy. 
Um, when uh, an ICS llama can't be used for one reason, ICS llama as part of duo therapy is an alternate approach. It does require a different type of an inhaler. So here, here's what I, here's the summary. So here's 12 years and older. So let's just go. So step one, you're going to use as needed Saba, but in the zero to four with wheezing with respiratory tract infections, you're going to use the seven to 10 day course of a, of a high dose, one, one a milligram of budesonide or 750 micrograms of flutibazone twice a day for seven to 10 days. Step two therapy, mild, persistent asthma. Preferred is either the daily low-dose ICS and as-needed Saba, that's what you're going to use in zero to 11-year-olds only, and in 12 and up, either that therapy or as-needed concomitant low-dose ICS and as-needed Saba. In step three and four, you're going to use SMART, a low-dose ICS for Moderol in three, uh, a medium dose in four. So he, he, here's a suggestion, all right? Step three. So step two didn't work. You're, you're in, they're having, their asthma's not under control. They've had an exacerbation that's unacceptable. Step three, you might put someone, uh, a 10-year-old, on Simbacord, 80 micrograms four point, uh, of, of uh, budesonide, 4.5 micrograms of fomoterol. So Simbacord, one puff, two times a day, maintenance, or two puffs once a day, maintenance, or two puffs twice a day, maintenance, plus one puff, of 84.5 as needed, up to eight puffs, four to 11, 12 puffs, 12 and up. In step four, same thing dosage wise, but now using Simbacort 160 micrograms of budesonide, 4.5 micrograms of formoterol. So, Maintenance, one puff BID, two puffs once a day, two puffs two times a day. That's maintenance. And then one puff as needed, up to eight puffs in the up to 11-year-olds, 12 puffs, 12 and up. And in step five, you're then going to use, hopefully in partnership with a specialist, you're going to use triple therapy, an ICS, a LABA, could be for Moderol, and a LAMA. All right, finally, just a couple words about fractional exhaled nitric oxide is recommended by the expert panel for use as an, uh, uh, as an adjunct test when the diagnosis of asthma is uncertain or when the management of asthma is uncertain. It's not recommended to assess asthma control uh, exacerbation severity, or to predict the future development of asthma. There just aren't data that support that. Immunotherapy is still recommended, uh, and subcutaneous immunotherapy is recommended as an add-on to standard pharmacotherapy. And the expert panel recommends against sublingual immunotherapy because there are only a couple of allergens that are FDA approved, and it's been approved only for use for the treatment of rhinoconjunctivitis and not for asthma. 
Bronchial thermoplasty, the recommendation was against its use as part of standard of care uh, in adults. And it was only in adults uh, that this recommendation was made. So in summary, why is this update both usable and trustworthy? Well, because it addresses pre-specified key questions. It uses the best available evidence. It used grade methodology, which really is the state of the art. And really no one should be using anything other than grade at this point in developing guidelines. We limited the use of expert opinion, it was vetted by, by uh, lots of people. And it includes an implementation guidance section to help clinicians uh, use the recommendations. I wanna thank the members of the expert panel. You, you, if you look down this list, you're gonna see, you, you will see lots of pediatricians. It was wonderful to have so many primary care people and pediatric people. Uh, on uh, this expert panel. I want to thank the NIH and Citrus, which is the implementation arm uh, of NHLBI, um, and everyone who took the time to um, read the guidelines. And I am happy to answer any questions. So thank you very much. Thank you, uh, Michelle, for an outstanding uh, summary presentation. I know, I know you worked for many months on making it simple for us uh, to understand. Uh, we have uh, several questions, and, and of course, we probably need a primer for ICS, SABA, SMART, LAMA. Uh, so I've learned uh, a lot of new terms, and uh, I think I know what, how to treat myself now. That's probably not a good thing to say. Uh, from Claire Bailey, when looking for environmental factors that may be actionable, like tobacco smoke exposure, what about wood stoves, uh, et cetera? She said vaping is the other one. Um, you know, the expert panel, uh, the expert panel uh, specifically confined itself to uh, indoor allergens and wood smoke is not an allergen, nor was environmental tobacco smoke, as I mentioned. Um, and, and those are all, uh, you know, they have particulate exposure. They've got to be extremely well vented. Um, and so, you know, would I recommend somebody taking the stove out? No. Would I recommend an incredibly good ventilation system? Yes, I, I would. Uh, you know, there's some things you can do and some things you can't do. And so it would depend upon the patient, the severity of their asthma, the ability to control their asthma and what the family is capable of doing. But yes, wood stoves are an issue. Uh, pellet stoves may be less so. Um, but I, I'm not really an expert in that area, and so I, I hesitate a little bit to um, talk about it. Great. Uh, thank you. Uh, from uh, Alex Hogan, ICS as needed in zero, four, in zero to four-year-olds, uh, the primary outcome of reduced systemic steroids. So can you comment on that? Um, so in yeah. the zero to four you're talking about zero to four outside of those who have, have uh, symptoms outside of a respiratory tract infection, I'm going to assume, Alex, you're talking yeah. about the broader, the broader group. And um, what, what we did, in fact, um, uh, look for uh, that data, but uh, that, those data are really, um, uh, are really uh, sparse. And that's why uh, sometimes there aren't recommendations specific to um, age groups and specific to situations because there's just insufficient uh, data um, to address it. If there was, we would have specifically stated not recommended for use in. Do you remember though, the zero to four year old 
who starts wheezing outside of respiratory tract infections probably does not have intermittent asthma. Uh, they, they may be wheezing four or five, six times a year, and they more likely have mild persistent asthma. And so they're more likely to benefit from step two therapy uh, from uh, perhaps daily, uh, from daily ICS, so BID therapy with ICS and PN as needed short acting bronchodilators. So, so I think in follow up to that prior question, uh, also from Dr. Hogan, uh, are systemic corticosteroids effective for children zero to four? Well, yeah, I, you know, I mean, you're, you're sort of going way beyond sort of the guidelines and the recommendations. And of course, that's, uh, I mean, that's a, a big question and no one knows the answer to that question um, because uh, many of those children are children who are going to go on to have asthma and to wheeze and wheeze as they get older. But uh, many of them are also not going to go on to have asthma. And our ability to predict who's going to have asthma and who isn't going to have asthma at that in that age range is difficult. And that's why there were so many studies in pheno that looked at the ability to predict the development of asthma. It wouldn't be terrific if pheno could look at a four-year-old and say, aha, you've got asthma and you don't. Unfortunately, those studies did not pan out. So we have no test for who's going to go on to develop asthma. And so you've got to look at uh, the frequency of symptoms, the impairment associated with that, uh, uh, and the treatment, uh, and, and sort of uh, the risks and benefits of the treatment. And that's part of that shared decision-making, again, with families. Um, Michelle, from David Kroll, uh, sort of a statement and a question. It looks like the move towards SMART and a transition from albuterol for some patients will make it easier to achieve success in meeting the asthma medication ratio measured as units of controller medication over units of control medication plus units of rescue medication as a quality measure. Was there any discussion of asthma quality measures during the development of these guidelines? Thank you. Who asked that question? Uh, David Kroll. He's uh, one of our pediatricians uh, who's charged with the clinically integrated network. Good for you. Thank you for asking. Th thank you for asking that question. So I am working right now with CMMS in, uh, and their quality uh, performance uh, group to in fact uh, create a new uh, standard for moderate persistent asthma because the AMR it can't be used in people who have moderate persistent asthma when you're using SMART because you're not using any albuterol. So we, we have uh, proposed uh, two, uh, possible, uh, um, two possible ways to assess that uh, and to categorize that. And it's being reviewed by CMMS right now. And, and, and as they go, so will go the other pharmaceutical companies. So the first step to getting SMART accepted is in fact to make this strong recommendation by the uh, uh, NAEPP and the Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute. Uh, that's going to be the first step. Uh, and I, I think the pharmaceutical industry will in fact uh, fall in place, particularly when some additional studies, one of which I know is ongoing right now, look at the cost effectiveness of this therapy. Because this therapy is gonna have a, a marked reduction in ED visits and hospitalizations. So it will pay for itself but it will also do it at a lower overall ICS exposure for children. So it really is a win-win. So that's the first thing. 
The bad news, and there is bad news, is that AstraZeneca, who currently makes uh, Symbacort, has no intention of getting FDA approval for SMART. And I don't know the reason why. It isn't, I believe, for a lack of trying or some effort on their part. In fact, I think the effort's been ongoing for years. So I don't know what the issue is, but they've decided to move on. That isn't to say that other companies aren't going to move in and fill that uh, void. And so uh, I, think, uh, I think this will come, um, but I appreciate uh, concerns about it. But the reality is um, this therapy has very high efficacy, very low risk of harms, extraordinarily well tolerated in children very well tolerated and less overall ICS exposure. A great question here. From, um, what is the harm of two, three courses of systemic steroids per year, five days each? Yeah, you know, I think that's a really good question. Um, and and it, it's, it's not clear. Well, what is clear are, are that um, in a adults who have been treated for many years with inhaled corticosteroids in uh, some courses, a few courses of corticosteroids, they're more likely to have osteoporosis, women in, in particular. Um, so there does appear to be uh, the possibility of a long-term risk um, uh, of it. I think, uh, again, uh, one or two courses a year, there isn't an issue. And remember, uh, I, I don't think that's an issue, but but if I could treat you instead with seven to 10 days of one milligram of budesonide twice a day, one milligram, I mean microgram, one milligram, sorry, one milligram, as opposed to 15 milligrams, 20 milligrams, depending upon how much you weigh, again, that's less drug for, for high effectiveness. And I think that's, and, and we know that even short courses can sort of blunt the uh, growth velocity in some children. It isn't much, it isn't very much. And again, it's a harms versus benefit. Um, and it's going to be a shared decision-making. If a family says to you, look, we just can't use this nebulizer, we just can't do that. Then would I use oral steroids? Yeah, I probably would. But if I take more than three courses a year, I, I, wouldn't, I don't wanna do that. That I don't wanna do. Yeah, I, I would agree. Uh, we have two more questions and then we'll finish. Uh, from Kathy Kalkbrenner, thank, uh, she, the statement is, thank you for a wonderful review. Do you think that our approach to inpatient asthma care should be changing as well? <laughs> That's a loaded question. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, I, I right now, I don't know how you're treating uh, inpatient asthma. I will tell you that... Um, Stephen Teach was uh, on the expert panel and, and Stephen and I uh, uh, just wrote a, a paper for uh, a pediatrics, a pediatric perspective on, on sort of therapy in, in children. And um, uh, acute management of asthma was not included in the purview of the expert panel. And so we didn't say anything about it. Um, but I do think um, you're gonna need to think about uh, implementing smart therapy uh, as part of discharge planning uh, for kids, uh, how to do that, uh, how best to do that. Um, and I, I think 
it's got to be shared decision making, but it also has got to be a third person in that, and that's got to be the primary care clinician. Uh, I think it would be uh, not wise to send kids home on SMART uh, without engaging and involving their primary care clinician in making that decision uh, in terms of therapy. Thank you. And then the, the last question, uh, this may require a longer answer that we have time for from, the, from your colleague, Dr. Lappin. Hi, Michelle. What are the recommendations for asthma exacerbations when SMART therapy is not working? It's oral corticosteroid therapy. So if, if, if that, so um, I will tell you, you're going to, using SMART, you're going to really reduce uh, the number of exacerbations. And you have a, a clear-cut measure uh, to tell patients when they need to call you without question. And without question might be their asthma is under control, but they're, but they're needing 12 puffs a day or, or eight puffs a day of, uh, uh, of their formoterol uh, ICS combination inhaler. That's a sign of inadequate control. If it's inadequate control on SMART, well, then you're going to go up to step five therapy and you're going to add, uh, you're going to add a llama to that therapy. So triple therapy. And that would be sort of that, that would be the recommendation. If they're well controlled uh, on SMART and they develop an exacerbation, which I will tell you is going to decrease quite significantly on this therapy. But if they do develop an exacerbation, then it's a course of oral corticosteroids, um, just like you would any, anyone else who had failed uh, on their therapy because of uh, an exacerbation. So Craig, I hope that answers your question. Great, thank you, Michelle. That was a, that was a perfect answer. And uh, just the last comment that, from one of our pediatricians, thank you for always including the PCP as a partner in the management of asthma. So that, that sort of reiterates what you have been saying all along. So Michelle, uh, thank you very, very much for sharing uh, wonderful Grand Rounds with us, information that is gonna be very useful. We had over 160 participants and I'm sure this is a Grand Rounds that's gonna be listened to a number of times. I think I will have to go back and so make sure that I become smarter in my, in my asthma therapy. Uh, so please, please uh, uh, come back uh, and give us an update, hopefully next year or the year after. Always can count on you. I really appreciate it. Dr. Hollenbach, thank you for the introduction. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. We'll see you again uh, a week from today. Uh, you, you're stuck with me giving grand rounds on uh, the other pandemic, congenital syphilis. We'll see you then. That will be our last one. So take care, everyone. Be safe. We'll see you again. Bye-bye. Bye, everyone.